Today's episode of Chunky Glasses, the podcast, is brought to you by the Indivisible Guide, a practical guide for resisting the Trump agenda. It's a team made up of former congressional staffers uh, revealing their best practices for making Congress listen. That sounds like something we're all interested in, right? Right. Uh, you can donate to this group on their page at www.indivisibleguide.com. You can follow them up on Twitter, which is at Indivisible Team. Uh, we follow them. So if you just look at our followers, you can get it like that. They have weekly calls. They have print, put out emails. They, they make uh, videos. They, they, they're they keeping you informed so you can, uh, as the kids say, stay woke, and uh, we can maybe get some shit done. So that's Indivisible Guide. Uh, they are awesome. And now let's get on with the show. Here and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Merely a two word review, just a shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the last man. That right there is a lot of Welcome back to the basement, fellow music lovers. You are now tuned into yet another exciting adventure with us here on Chunky Glasses, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin, as usual, and we've got a really special podcast for you to kick off your week with. You know, uh, our friend Marcus Dowling. He is a he's a man about town. He is a gentleman and a scholar, and he uh, has just sort of started doing this series of lectures in coordination with the uh, DC Public Library System. Where he's going to be talking about GoGo and the uh, the history of of DC. Uh, this is something we've we've touched on a little bit on this podcast before, but never in depth like this. So uh, last Monday, over at the MLK Library here in the nation's capital, get together with one uh, Andre Andre White Boy Johnson, Michelle Blackwell, uh, Nico Hobson of GoGo Radio, Geronimo Nose. Uh, he hosts another podcast, All the Fly Kids. Uh, had a had a nice little turnout. And uh, and they taped it, and he said, "Hey man, do we want to we want to put this out? We want other people to hear this." I said, "Hell yes, we want other people to hear this." So they're going to be talking about five classic songs, and uh, sort of the history of what the real music of DC is, in my opinion, and and where we go from here. Now there, there's a lot been said lately about about what is DC. You had somebody uh, recently mistakenly call it a sleepy little music town it was never it was always a a powerhouse of music you just had to know uh where to look maybe it wasn't your music should have been your music but but uh go-go jazz blues uh all played a a bluegrass even come on they've all played a huge part of, of the music scene here long before we knew anything like indie rock or the 930 club or the Black Cat or Fugazi. Nothing wrong with all those things, but uh, we have a much deeper history than I think people know about, and uh, Mr. Dowling is, is the guy to tell you about it. So, that's your podcast this week. I will tell you up front, this is sort of a field recording, and uh, so so it is is a little rough around the edges, uh, much like the history itself. Uh, so, so, get down for that. Get ready for that. But otherwise, this is a fantastic conversation 
with some of our musical luminaries in this town uh, about Gunga. So if you're ready and, and you're and you're in for this, then uh, let's hang out for about two hours. Now I'm going to turn it over to my friend Marcus. So here we go. Uh, episode number 261, where Marcus Dowling is giving a good little speech and panel discussion on uh, Go-Go as DC history. say about yourself i'm a native washingtonian and i've been a fan of this music uh long before i became an active member honored to be here among this distinguished panel Thank fabulous you and uh this is uh nico hobson of gogo radio gogo radio live gogo radio live <laughs> okay and uh, what else would you like to say about yourself as far as an introduction um just the owner of uh uh, go go win dot media, which is uh, the parent company of Go Go Radio Live and Windy C Radio, which is uh, for independent artists and entrepreneurs. But uh, uh, Go Go Radio has been my baby for uh, seven years now, and long before that, I've been involved in the Go Go industry uh, for a predominant part of my life. Right. So I'd say if you actually wanted to hear Go Go music after this panel is done, that you would want to talk to Nico and you want to. Listen to uh, Go Go Radio Live because no doubt probably the one place in the world I'd say that still regularly plays Go Go music on a daily basis. Twenty four seven. There it is. Okay, so okay, so we're starting back in 1980 in Washington D.C. Where Washington D.C. was 71 percent black and 27 percent white. Kind of different than where we are right now, but it's important to start the conversation here. And it's not to be racial, it's not to be difficult, it's not to be confrontational, but it's just to state facts so that we could start from a place of facts and we could start to get into and pull out the beauty of this music. I'd say that uh, go-go music is uh, something that's inherent to D.C. because it's soul, it's R&B, it's jazz, it's hip-hop culture inspired, it's underground, it's punk, it's funk, it's reggae, and it encompasses all of that into one unique sound. It's uh, driven by a pocket rhythm, correct? That is, is one of the funkiest sounds you'll ever hear. So you're going to hear five songs tonight, five of which I'll get into as we go through this. For people who are go-go fanatics... The Resource Center is showing a film called Freedom Riders, Okay, great, so we're doing that too. <laughs> and uh, so... and. We're going to look ahead, and I want to give people something to think about as we look ahead into this. Uh, by the year 2000, D.C.'s population was 60% black and 31% white. And by the year 2014, 46% black and 40% white. So you're looking at a shift that has occurred over that period of time. And there are numerous things that occurred during that period of time. There was, uh, you know, there was issues with gangs, issues with drug abuse, issues with violence issues with incarceration, but it's also a time where when you talk about D.C. in that area, you're talking about the area of Marion Barry. Marion Barry, the four-term mayor of Washington, D.C. I see everybody smiling who's a native Washingtonian. Because for as much as people say negative things about Marion Barry, this is a man who literally provided jobs 
for not just my mom, and probably not just your mom, and probably not just your mom too, but for a ton of people in Washington, D.C. In fact, uh, and when we start this conversation in around 1986, he said that he had created so many jobs that he didn't know how many jobs he had created. He said that it was impossible to count through general mathematics how many jobs he had created in the nation's capital. So this is a strange and unique time for a, the nation's capital to be in. We're looking at also the era of Ronald Reagan living right down the street. You know, one of the most you know, noted you know, Republican presidents of all time. He's and he's in office, and you're looking at that, and you have all of these numerous things that are occurring. So that's all happening, and people have music. They have go-go music, and go-go is the, the sound that drives the city, even still to this day, and uh, there's no better place to begin, I think, than at the beginning, and so the best place to begin when you talk about go-go is with Chuck Brown. Chuck Brown being the godfather of go-go. Uh, someone who, by this era in 1986, he had just recently had a big mainstream surge with a song called Bustin' Loose and for the young people in the crowd, or just rap fans in the crowd. That was the uh, song that was kind of the underpinning of Nelly's uh, Hot in Here. Everybody? Nelly? Nelly? Nelly fans? Nelly fans? Okay, good. Just make it sure. Just make it sure, right? Because, I mean, you, we've all been through this conversation before, and we have to tell your non-go-go friends about Nelly's Hot in Here. Right, yeah. Exactly, just make it sure. And uh, so I want to play a song that he released in 1986. It's called We Need Some Money. And that was the thing. We were just out of a recession in America. We were just out of a recession in D.C. Mary and Barry's giving people jobs. And if there's anything that we needed, we absolutely needed some money. Chuck Brown, the godfather of go-go, that's we need some money. So the, the funny thing that I came across when I was doing research for this thing was I noted that Robert Christgau, who's this noted rock critic, when he talked about go-go, because everybody talked about go-go at some point, go-go by 1986 was kind of a thing, kind of an indie underground surging the mainstream thing, and when he talked about busting loose back in 78, 79, he said this about go-go. So I just wanted to frame this because this is wild and hilarious to me in a lot of ways. He said that Go-Go is sort of like a field recording, a completely unpretentious document of what sort of originals a modestly gifted, modestly gifted funk soul dance band might be doing. 
and it's very likable. Robert Kreisgau. In any event, I wanted to start the conversation talking about what was going on in 86, what was going on as far as, you know, your thoughts about Chuck, just any memories, and just kind of like what was going on if you saw him play during this era, and I just wanted to get a sense of D.C. in and around 1986. Well, yeah, um, Chuck, that was, I believe, his first uh, big record after Bustin' Loose. Uh, after Bustin' Loose, he came off tour, and they were around town, but I think the band kind of took a break, came back in 1986 with that record. Strong record. As soon as uh, I heard him play that record live, I heard him play it live before he recorded it. As soon as I heard the record, I was like, he has another one. That's another one right there. Um, what, is it about, what is it about it that makes it a hit? Well, it's it's the beat, and as soon as he hit the record, the, the entire crowd responded. That's how you know. Right there. As soon as he went into the beat of the record, everybody, need, everybody responded. Then he started talking about we need some money, and everybody needs money. So uh, <laughs> that record really connected with, with the audience. Right. So where were you living in 86? I was living in D.C., Northeast D.C. Where, where in Northeast? What neighborhood? Um, the uh, 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 Minnesota and Benning Road, over that way. Okay, cool. I grew up, I grew up on Eastern Avenue, over by Dingwood okay. Metro Station, right, so I'm right. right around the corner from you. Yep, right cool. there. So, so what was going on? What was happening in the streets? Like, what, was it, what was it like? Well, I mean, the streets were, the streets were, were rough at that time uh, due to the drug addiction and drug violence and all of that there. Um, but go-go in the streets were very popular. It was, there was nothing to see 15, 20 bands playing around town, different neighborhoods, different parts of the city. Right. At so, that time. Yes. I mean, because there were venues all over the place for us. Right. So, I mean, was the Chateau still a venue at that the point? Chateau was still there. Right. Chateau, Chateau, like, just closed or something. The Chateau, by the way, is on uh, Benning Road. Benning Road, right So, there, if you go all the way down H Street, so everybody's going down H Street. Say you're, you go to Sticky Rice or you go to Maketo or you go wherever, and you keep all the way down H Street, like, all the way towards the bridge. There's a venue that's like right next to like the the shell, right? Yeah, yeah, right before you yeah, go. Yeah, right before get you get to the shell, there's a venue. It's called the Chateau. The Chateau hosted go-go events and hand dancing. Hand dancing, cabarets, bunch of stuff. Right, yeah. So, Michelle, you're a lead talker. So, talk to me about Chuck on this record. Okay, uh, well, first up, I wanted to um, to go back to something that he spoke about when he talked about the different genres that influence go-go. He named rap, he named um, hip-hop, R&B, jazz, uh, reggae. But um, one um, that was left out, I think, is, 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 is really central to go-go, um, and that's African. Yes. Um, because, um, you know, the, the percussion... Uh, in go-go is really it's 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 heartbeat in every sense of the word the drums the congas um and now the rototoms and timbales like these these are the things that the, the essence of go-go is really um locked in its percussion and and that is um 
intrinsically African, um, not just um, the percussion um, aspect of it, but the call and response. And there are just many um, aspects of go-go that uh, will uh, give you um, a, a, a lot of African vibes. So um, it's a part of, of our culture that I believe that um, transcended any sort of uh, um, attempt to uh, uh, erase a lot of what it was that we had when we came here, uh, when we were brought here, rather. And so I think it's important for us to acknowledge that African music is also um, very much in, interwoven in the fabric of this music. Uh, um, but t- as, to answer your question, uh, you know, Chuck yeah, Brown... Talk to me about Chuck, baby. Like, right. One, Chuck yeah. Brown, actually, when I was coming up, used to play at this venue called The Black Hole. Um, it went through several different names. Um, Celebrity Hall and The Black Hole were the main two when I was coming up. And the two bands that I went to see there uh, was Chuck Brown and Rare Essence. And so Chuck Brown, um, to teens then... Um, as well as where Essence is kind of a, a rite of passage, you know, because no. every every sort of neighborhood had their own, you know, bands. and But they were like the big three. And Chuck what, Brown. What was the band rest, in your neighborhood? Where did you grow up, number one? Um, I grew up in Upper Northwest. Uh, where in Upper Northwest? Upper Northwest um, near um, Calvin Coolidge Senior High School on Van Buren, right off between Piney Branch and Fifth Street is okay. where my house was. So you're going all the way up towards Silver Spring. Yeah, and so uh, we had like Petworth Band and like, uh, uh, oh my goodness, I can't remember where, Gogo Mickey actually played for one of the bands, I'm trying to remember the name of it, Reality, Reality Band, so they were kind of, uh, uh, you know, the up and coming bands back then, or, or the, one of the neighborhood bands, as you could say, but if you're talking about the ones that uh, were sort of the marquee bands, um, Chuck Brown and Rare Essence, so I used to go see Chuck at the Black Hole and... Uh, <laughs> It was it was it was um it was amazing actually because uh, outside of busting loose, uh, Chuck Brown really introduced my my generation to a kind of music that we never would have been exposed to had it not been for, been for him with his jazz standards. Yeah. Um. Uh, Moody's Moon. Love. Right. Those kind of songs we would have never been exposed to had it not been for Chuck. So Chuck kind of gave thing. us a sophistication, um, even as teenagers that. Uh, uh, we wouldn't have had, so we owe you know a lot to that. Yeah. So I wanted to ask them about like sophisticated records of being in a black person in Washington D.C. There's a le- there's an era a level of sophistication that's really important to this era. I think of feeling like you had something. Like I don't know if that's just me and the way I was raised. No, I think D.C. Um, in and of itself, I was told I yeah, was told yeah, a while yeah. ago. Um, I was told many years ago uh, that D.C. was very cosmopolitan uh, as far as African and African Americans. Um, when you go to um, and, and and when I traveled outside of D.C., I was always told um, that we sort of had a certain way about us that, and I think that's um, um, due to the fact that, of course, uh, uh, we were so. Uh, you know, there were so many of us here. Right. Um, when you go into New York, you go to other big cities, you know, it's not necessarily mostly black. And also, too, because, uh, you know, this is a government town, and although right. I know we went through our recession, you know, the government is an industry that's not necessarily going to be affected by that. So we were still kind of flourishing, even going through what we went through during the 80s, um, during the cracker and all that. We were still flourishing in our own way. So I think we were still able to uh, maintain our own level of, I guess... DC right ness sophistication in that in that regard yeah. and um 
And uh, we had a music renaissance going on there. I like people talk about the crack era and all that kind of stuff that was going on in the 80s, and that's absolutely true. But there was a music renaissance going on during this that time as well. weird dichotomy right. happening. So I wanted Nico and Geronimo <laughs> to talk about the legacy of this record then. Because we're about the same age, G. So, like, I was eight years old, and I was unable to go to parties. So, like, the only thing I knew is whenever Chuck Brown records were always related to my mother, Wearing perfume and wearing five-inch heels. That's all I knew that, like, initially, that's all that Go-Go was. It was like, my mom's going to the cabaret. Some guy's going to pick her up. She's going to put on five-inch heels. She's going to play this music around the house, and then she's going to come back at 2 o'clock in the morning. Like, that's, all I, that's what I knew initially of, of Go-Go. And that live it was Chuck and the, the sophistication. But if you, got, if, if you two guys want to talk about the, 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 the legacy of that record, because I know that, Nico, you must play it about 100 times a a year, at least minimally. Well, I, I don't. I don't want to be difficult, but from what I remember, and yeah, Dre, Dre, please correct me if I'm wrong. But when I remember when Money came out, um, I believe what preceded that was Back It On Up, and then um, and then Money came out, and then after that was Live at Crystal Skate, which was '86, '85, '86, because. I believe that came out around the same time because uh, Donnie Simpson really broke that and made that a real big hit on KYS. Right. So around that time, it was around the same time when uh, Lynn Byers had was murdered and all of the, during that period of time. So prior to that, I believe money was like 84, 85. Yeah. And because uh, the uh, reason why I remember that is because certain records that came out during that time, uh, I believe y'all was playing... Um, uh, uh, should be the right, uh, uh, she, yeah, yeah, should, should be the what? Uh, should have robbed that bottom came out around that time. Um, it was around 86, the BPMs changed for bands playing, they kind of slowed down, right? And, um, so back it on up, and uh, and uh, and money was like a, a much faster tempo, you know, um, so you know, Gogo was played a little bit differently, uh, prior to 86. It was, it was a lot faster. Right. So, I mean, that's the thing, though. It's like, Go-Go, I feel, has gotten slower in a lot of ways over time. Well, like, uh, I mean, it's just, just you know, it just, as anything in, you know, music and times, you know, things just change with time. So, you know, uh, they've, they've sped up, gone down, sped up, gone down, where now, you know, you got a little bit of a, the trap beat that's kind of, right, like, popular right, right, right. right now. Uh, prior to that, you know, uh, DJ Screwhead made that kind of popular, you know, uh, down, down in Texas. And uh, it kind of, you know, moved its way up, you know. So, um, you know, just just different things, you know, in cultures, you know, influences music and vice versa. Exactly. So, you know, just to, um, I can relate with you. Um, I'm actually a few years younger than you. When this song came out, I was about four years old. <laughs> and um, my, I don't remember this, hearing the song, but I remember the city at that time. My sister, who's much older than me. Um, she had just moved over to Parkland in Southeast, and um, I'd stayed with her. My, me and my family, we lived in uh, Oxford Hill at this time, Oxford right. Hill, Maryland, and PG County, and um, I would stay with her on the weekends, and I remember just the neighborhood she lived in, Parkland being right off of uh, Mississippi Avenue, where, um, if y'all are familiar with the Ark, um, right near there. Um, I just remember how fast everything was moving from just like the kids my age to like the older guys outside doing what they were doing, you know, whether they were hustling or just being outside. And 
that song was just really representative of that, just like how Nico brought up the faster pace of Go-Go at that time, which I do remember. Um, but I think it really represented just not only that, but also the time frame we were in. Everybody was just looking for, like, just trying to make some money, man, trying to make some money, trying to get it. Right. So, I mean, I wanted to, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I believe that also resonated around the Reagan period as well. And so it was It was a lot of um, the reason why Marion uh, uh, Barry was so popular at that time because he brought hope to a lot of the people that was here in the city because of what was going on around the country. And um, which, you know, uh, like one of the other songs we're getting ready to play. Um, Literally about to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you know that when Junkyard came out with the word, you that's know, next by the way. Junkyard's the word. So so a lot of that kind of like resonated with the people because the times were hard, right? You know, so uh, when money came out, you know, it, it just kind of like it was it was it was a go to song, you know, especially for DJs, you know. Um, so they was like, well, you know, because they knew that people, you know, when you when you play a song. You want it to resonate with the people so they can identify with it, you know. And it, one thing about that that particular track is, you know, I don't care, you know, what the era is. Everybody talking about we need that money, but you know, when Chuck was talking about, I could squeeze on it to to the eagle grins, you know, because things were tight. Right. Don't need things no real tight. or American Express. That's right. Cash is the best. Yes. Right. Without a doubt. Right, so uh, so we're we're gonna you know continue this 1986 vein and also talk about the fact that there were guys from New York City coming down to D.C. to come into the go-go parties. That was a thing. I mean, we could all agree, right? Like everybody knew that there were like guys like, right? Yeah, absolutely. We we met a lot of them. <laughs> right. So one of them no was Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin from Def Jam Records. Rick, Rick Rubin, who's you know produced Jay Z, Johnny Cash. Uh, the Beastie Boys, I can, we can name people he's produced forever. And uh, a, a thing that he was really into was Go-Go. And uh, at some point, Def Jam wanted to release a Go-Go A-side, B-side, because, you know, punk things. And uh, the thing that they decided to do is they released uh, an A-side, B-side of A, the A-side being Sardines, which is a legendary Go-Go song. And then the B-side was a politically-themed Go-Go song that talked about the fact that Ronald Reagan was making bombs and that people in the hood weren't getting food stamp money. So I'm going to play this song. It's called The Word. And uh, it's really, it's one of my favorite Go-Go songs of all time. And I think that uh, if you haven't heard it before, it'd probably end up being yours once you hear it.
I want to apologize for cutting that off because the word, the, the, that, that's just, there you go. Thank you. But, uh, but yeah, so I want to talk about, I want to talk about the Junkyard Band because the Junkyard Band are incredible in the sense that when you think in reality, these are guys from the Berry Farms Housing Projects who started a band when they were between the ages of 8 and 13 years old. I don't know what everybody else was doing when they were between the ages of 8 and 13 years old, but were you making songs like Sardines and The Word and doing that with your life, or were you playing video games? I was playing video games. But in any event, uh, this is a group that by the time they released The Word, they were between the ages of 14 and 21, and uh, again, it's a song that's political, but it still jams, and you can still play it in a party, and people still dance to it. So uh, I want everybody to kind of jump in on this one, because I feel like this is a song that has a lot of history to it. It has a lot of like, importance to the community of D.C. at the time. And uh, I think that it, you know, like getting it out to the people and letting them know kind of like where the city was at when this song hit is very important. Well, the fact that they recorded the record with buckets, cans, and boxes is one there it is. very important uh, uh, fact there. They made those things sound like uh, instruments, mm-hmm. um, which, was, which was, that was good. I don't think they meant it to be a gimmick. That's what they had. That's all they had mm-hmm. in, the, in right. the neighborhood, but it ended up working for them. Um, and uh, that was, I think that was the really uh, intriguing, intriguing part of why Rick Rubin and uh, Russell Simmons wanted to work with them because they, these kids were making music on, on trash, you know? <laughs> you know, but it sounded great. Right. You know, it, 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 and they were drawing crowds everywhere they were. So, so where were they playing at that point? They were doing a lot of uh, rec centers. They used to do the Barry Farms rec center all the time. Um, uh, and uh, different uh, school uh, auditoriums they were playing. I think I want, I want everybody. I, 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 played, they used to play right down the street. I was about to say, they, they played outside, too, and just yeah. for, for money, actually. Um, right, for, right. The, uh, for, for tourists. So like, right, for tourists, I would say. Malik the Dope drummer is not here, and he was supposed to be here, because I was going to point at him and say, there's a lineage from you to them, but he's not here. But if you look up Malik the Dope Drummer, he's a percussionist right. who literally plays. Yes. You know Malik. Yes. You played with Malik. Yes, that is spot on. That is spot right. on right there. And he plays everywhere, <laughs> literally everywhere for, for money, and he's amazing. And so, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. But, uh, but I wanted to talk about the importance of rec centers to go-go culture. Yes. Because, I mean, how many of you live near a rec center? right now in your communities in D.C. How many kids do you actually see go to the rec center in your community in D.C. right now? Right. So let's talk then about what rec centers were actually doing in communities in 1986. Well, I grew up um, up the street from Tacoma Rec. Okay. And, um, the, and, and, and not just rec centers, but the, the, the environment um, with Mary and Barry, um, because I, I also wanted to, um, um, to touch on him really quick while we're talking about the By all means. It's not just about the jobs he created. Like, there was an environment that was friendly to, um, to go-go in the city and also friendly He was to, a go-go fan. He drove to the go-go's, right? Yeah, absolutely. And friendly to children, um, to, to the youth in the city. And so, uh, he made it, uh, he made it 
okay. He 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 made he made it um he made it accessible for kids out here that wanted an outlet to have a, a, a way to do that. And that was a lot of that was through music, and and a lot of that happened at at these rec centers. And we used to always and not only rec centers, block parties. Um, um a lot of bands used to play outside during the summer. Um, he had the summer youth employment program, but part of that was the showmobile. My first job. The showmobiles used to, used to be outside in the band. How about yours, day. Nico? No, that was, I was I was throwing papers. That was <laughs> that was my gig. I was pu- I was pushing that Washington Post around. There it is. They were instrumental though. And also, can I to, to speak on that song, the word? Yeah, well, re- anybody that remembers around that time, um, hip hop had released a song similar, Grandmaster Flash, the message. Right. Um, so that was kind of what was going on back then, and it was sort of this. Uh, people have to understand too, around in, during the eighties, with this influx of drugs. Um, into all these different communities. Um, Reagan, at the same time, his whole administration and their culture personified uh, materialism and 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 um, wealth. And so, at, right. And so, feels uh, oddly familiar. Right. You know, I'm just saying. Right, but people don't people forget that when the Reagan administration, when when he came into office, it was all about getting money, spending money, having this name brand, this name brand that. That's et cetera, kind of et cetera, in a cashmere sweater. Right. So that's where all that came into play. So, um, uh, you know, you had to kind of had it where people were in poverty and the ones that were uh, out, you know, hustling to, to, to make money, to make ends meet. They were also um, spending a lot of that money to keep up with the Joneses and be fly because that's kind of what it was about back then was uh, kind of being flashy and, and showing what you had. So it just manifested that way here because it's go-go. But it was the same way, I'm sure, in New York with hip-hop because that was their, their outlet and this was ours. So, Right. So, I mean, like, yeah, I want to get you in on this real quick. Um, well, I want to say two things. Um, as far as just, like, the politically charged um, nature of the song, like, this was one of the my earliest memories of a politically charged song that I, I heard. You know, um, it's funny that this song came on after I talked about my sister in the first song. My my brother in law grew up with them in Berry Farms, and um, to this day, you put on a junkyard song, he he gets happy. But um, you know, I being somebody, I didn't grow up in the city like a lot of people. I grew up right outside the city, but um. So my life was a little different, but this was like really my first insightful introduction to what it was like to live in the hood. And for that reason, you know, I think that that set the tone for the compassion versus where a lot of people I grew up with out Maryland, they didn't have the same compassion to, you know, what struggle was like because they didn't experience it, you know. So for me, I never really... I never saw the need to look down on somebody because, you know, they might have had less than me. They might have they might have grown up in harder circumstances or what have you. So um, I wanted to say that part first. As far as the rec centers, um, I think rec centers were always instrumental, as everybody's already said. You know, um, even for me, my first live experience with GoGo was at a rec center. You know, what I mean, I mean, of course, it was years after um, the word came out, but like my who did you see? Oh, some Maryland band. <laughs> 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 it, it was, it, it, I mean, um, it was a it was a band called um, it was a band called uh, Jigaboo, the Jigaboo band. Okay. I went to high school with them. Um, I was fourteen. They were seniors at the time um, when I was going to Oxon Hill High School. 
Um, so that was the first band I ever saw. Saw them at um, the rec center in my old neighborhood, and I saw them at the uh, staff development center around the corner. You know, um, so that was my first rec center live go go experience. So, Nico, let's, let's like let's talk about the word, man. Well, first of all, I'd like to give credit to a good friend of mine, me and um, Dre's a uh, real good friend of mine who wrote that song, Mo Shorter. Um, he, he should get all the credit. He was currently, uh, I believe, I'm not sure if he was full-time manager, because uh, the original manager was Derek McRae, but uh, Mo Shorter was the actual writer for that song. Uh, John, they, they was young, as they they didn't really know. The, that, I'm pretty sure they didn't know the full impact of that song at that time when they was performing it. So, uh, so you mean to tell me somebody? Uh, this is uh, the best part of talking to Nico, by the way, is that he'll say things about Gogo that he just knows as like information. He's like the, literally the world's foremost Gogo authority is sitting on the stage right I, now. I would say all that. <laughs> I, I, I'll say it for you because that's why that's why I called you for this. That's why I called you because I know. And it's like you'll say things, and I'm just like, wow. You'll just open up a whole new world. So you mean to tell me he wrote this and yeah. they just sang it? Well, I mean, he was their manager, right? You know, so it was that was a natural transition, you know. Here, you know, you know, y'all play this right here because um, Mo. If you ever knew Mo, he's a very astute dude, very astute, you know. So uh, and and is talking to him. He loves talking politics, you know. So it was that was you know second nature to him at that time. So um, I just I just want to make sure that you know people know that uh, when when that song came about that he was a major component of that uh, other than the fact that you know Junkyard made it what it, what it is to today yeah well I'm just saying you know for us to actually put a pen to paper on it yeah, but um, but um, but uh, far as going on in 86 at that time period uh, I was actually uh, uh, getting ready to go into the military myself um and, but I do remember when that 12-inch came out, what was what was major to me is coming down on F Street. And uh, cause like I said, I, I was, you know, kind of like a part-time, you know, DJ back then. Um, and uh, I used to remember how the record stores was really a What an F? Is this the F, F here? Or? F, that's right. This F Street right here. Okay, so you know, literally down the street. It was I remember a, this growing it up. Was, so. It was a really affluent area, you know, down there as far as it was it was it was the Wiz, um Kit Mill, uh Douglas Records. Um I don't think Waxy was on this strip though. I don't think it was on this strip. But um but what was good about uh Douglas, they actually had a DJ in the window. You know, they used to spin for you. And um I actually met uh Heavy D. He had jumped out at Lemo and um he came out and uh, and he was coming up in there. Just doing, rap legends, just roaming yeah. the streets of Washington D.C. Yeah. in the 80s, by the way. This is like yeah. a perfectly normal occurrence, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. At, at that time, seeing D.C., he wasn't necessarily a legend to us. He was just another dude, Because right. Gogo was king back then, you know. So it was again just to make sure the people like. Well, go, go, I mean, just Gogo was king. Gogo ruled D.C. You know, I mean, period. I mean, it wasn't. Hip-hop wasn't the thing it is now, you know, multi-billion dollar conglomerate. You know, uh, it was, it was, 
it had its impact, you know, to where, you know, people noticed it and, and, and liked it, but it nowhere near the influence. I mean, it was just a drop in the bucket compared here because Andre would tell you, you know, if you was a hip-hop artist and you came behind a go-go band here, that was a, the kiss of death, you know, uh, especially after these cats. You know, they, they, <laughs> they, they, they would make sure that was the last thing you wanted to do because I remember at the Cap, Cap Center, um, Go-Go Live uh, concerts, right? Well, well, I'm talking about before before Go-Go Live. Okay. When uh, Run DMC, LL Cool J, Houdini, you remember all of them, Dre? When they came here, and uh, it was an issue. They didn't, uh, I believe, I believe it was LL had a problem with coming behind a Go-Go band. Public Enemy. Public, okay, okay, well, and, and, and that was that was my band right there. But I, did, I didn't really get into them until later on, but that's that's another story. But, at that time, I mean, to come behind a go-go band, like I said, it was just, it was a kiss of death. You know, because a lot of times they were either the crowd would have an attitude with you, or they would just simply just walk out on you. You would have you would have you would have less of a crowd there. You know, so uh, go-go um, was uh, was definitely king. Okay, definitely so king. We're gonna go to the next song now, and I want to like frame this correctly. We just literally talked about the word yeah. right there, my man. So yeah, Jetsy Titsworth, ladies and gentlemen, good man. But uh, so yeah, so we're in this point now where we're talking about 1987, 1988, 1989 in Washington, D.C. Between uh, 1986 and 1990, there was a 144% climb in uh, murders in the city from uh, 194 homicides in 1986 to 474% in 1990, it's literally the most violent year in Washington, D.C.'s history. Uh, it was a really tough time here. I mean, everybody can agree, everybody who was living here in 1990. Yes. It was literally, uh, people, people were fearful to go out into the streets. But at the same time, in that same era, uh, you had things like Spike Lee was doing a movie about black colleges. And he wanted to have a go-go song on the soundtrack. Because as we've said on this panel, you can't actually beat go-go. Like, everybody who was up in New York is like, okay, our New York rappers go out of D.C. And the go-go bands blow them off the stage. And also go-go, as you've talked about, Michelle, when you talk about, like, going, we talked about this earlier today, when you go into, like, college towns, especially historically black colleges and universities, those towns, go-go acts were massive draws. Like, still are to this day, massive draws. So in order to make a relevant and powerful and impacting movie about historically black colleges and universities, you had to have Go-Go on the soundtrack. So the song I'm going to play is by a uh, veteran group at that point. They had been together for about 10 or 15 years, I think. band called Experience Unlimited, a.k.a. EU. They had this baritone voice front man uh, named uh, Sugar Bear. And he's one of the most iconic, you'd say, front men that we have in the go-go genre. No doubt. Right. And so uh, I'm not going to hold this back anymore because then everybody wants to hear it now that I said it. I'm going to play the butt by you, which, again, is one of those songs that, much like the word and much like we want some money, it's a song that you can't forget ever the first time you hear it.
time that I feel really, really bad about turning off a song. That's the butt by EU. So uh, let's, let's talk about Washington, D.C. on like the global stage. This is like 87, 88. So like Marion Barry is like the most like amazing black man in the world. And <laughs> we live in Washington, D.C. where there's like crime and violence, but there's also like, you know, for pockets of the town, like good money being made. Like, you know, my mom, she got like a car at this point, and it was like the biggest thing that ever happened in my life, because it was like, suddenly we could go to places like Virginia, which were like foreign countries to me. It was like, wow, I can go to Front Royal. This is astounding. Like, it was just crazy. So I was like, D.C. was this crazy place to me. My mom worked for the D.C. government. It was like, wow, like we're on to something. But at the same time, I had like, you know, my, my friends had like, crack addicted nieces, nephews, uncles, and you're just like, that, that's terrible. So there's this dichotomy, and then you have this movie that comes out where Go-Go's the soundtrack, and it's like a number one Billboard R&B song. So like, I'm gonna start with you, because you're in a band at this point, and you're still playing the same gigs, and then all of a sudden, this like, whole thing like goes bananas. Yeah. <laughs> really went bananas, yeah. Um, but it was great for the entire genre, and we kind of recognize that. That um, on the stations outside of DC that wouldn't play Go-Go, now all of a sudden they wanted to you know, listen to it because of the butt. So they broke that ground for, um, for most of us around here. Um, Sugar Bear, um, and then when you actually have the group to go to that town and perform and you actually are in the Go-Go, that's when it really hits you. You know, you get caught up in the atmosphere of uh, with the band and the club and, and, and interacting with the audience. That's when it really gets you. So they open, they kick that door open by uh, out there with the butt. Yeah, so like, who wants to go next? Let's talk about DC, let's talk about the area, let's talk about the butt. Speak on something that uh, <clears throat> only sort of someone that grew up and, and was sort of outside because I was outside of the industry at that time. I was strictly someone who was just going out to, to party at the go go's. I right. was going to go go's then. And so, something people may not um, be aware of that are listening, but um, go go, okay, the, the way DC it was kind of set up, you know, we never had gangs. We were sort of had, we had crews and cliques and that sort of thing. And so, go go was kind of like that in a sense too. Um, as, um, as, as it pertains to different fan bases of different bands, depending on where you live, you follow a certain band. Um, it might be because that's, you know, play somewhere close to you or what have you. But um, in my case, you know, I grew up in Upper Northwest and the bands, 
you know, outside of the local bands that we went to see um, were um, Rare Essence and Chuck Brown, right? Because they played at the Black Hole. It wasn't too far from where I live. And the Junkyard was kind of a Southeast band. A lot of um, people from Southeast went to see Junkyard. And, of course, you had bands like Northeast Groovers. But I say that because uh, I literally, growing up, I've been going to Go-Go's my entire life and was going every weekend from the time I was able to sneak out the house and do it. But I had never seen EU live until I was an adult. And in fact, it wasn't even EU then. It was They were called Maish and the Hip Huggers. He had um, formulated a new band for, um, that's probably for another subject. But I guess right. what, what I'm saying, I say that to say that um, when the butt um, uh, premiered um, on Spike Lee's movie, um, we were so, we were, everybody was, was really proud and we partied. But to be honest, you know, we, we were still very much um, entrenched in our own sort of DC culture of who who it is we were rocking with. Okay, you so this I mean? is like a funny thing. Like when I was in like this is this this song came out when I was like the fifth grade. Mm-hmm. So like all of my friends in the fifth grade that had like older and I wish my buddy George was here. He works at DCPL. He would attest to this because we were in went to St. elementary school. But if you had like an older brother or an older sister, they kind of like influence your go-go taste. And I was an only child. So I didn't really have anybody to influence it. So I was just kind of like hanging out and I lived all the way over in far northeast and I went to school in near northeast and I had friends who lived in upper northwest. So I really didn't know, like, where's, what's my band? I, I had no band. I was like, I don't know. But The Butt was this giant song everywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. But in Washington, D.C., if you were not a fan of EU, this was like your third favorite go-go record. If you were, you, uh, the, the butt's a number one billboard smash around the world. Absolutely. But if you were in Washington, D.C. at this mm-hmm. time, and you like two bands, where do you like the EU? Right. The butt may have been your third favorite. Right. Absolutely. But, I mean, again, I mean, we we were still fans of and supportive of of Sugar Bear. Right. We loved them. It was just that D.C. had its own different areas that supported their different favorite bands. And, again, if you were in Southeast, it was Junkyard and it was R.E., but... You know, um, and EU was, so, you know, sort of, I guess, probably yeah, supported by too. everybody. Yeah. You're Southeast, too. But again, because of where I grew up, the bands that I saw and I stuck with and by um, um, was, you know, Rare Essence and Chuck Brown. But, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, the global thing because that was also a factor. You know, EU, Trouble Funk, did a lot of traveling during the mid to late 80s. Right. But here Go-Go in the city, was breaking out, right. Right. But here in the city, it was sort of, we still had our same machine going, you know what I mean? So I think um, um, Bear might have got a bit of a bad, you know, sort of situation. And I know he, I talked to him about it, Sugar Bear. He said he kind of felt like when he came back from touring, um, same for Big Tony for Trouble Funk, they didn't necessarily feel like they got the love in the city that they wanted. Um, on a on a regular right, circuit, right, right. Um, because that's where the bread and butter is, to be honest. You know what I'm saying? Um, but um, yeah, he was he was all he's he's, he's he was a staple and icon then. He is now. But um, yeah, it was it was it was uh, it was it was wild to see our music being played on a national stage. Something that we you know um, been partying to. So, Nico, I had a question for you. I want to talk to you about the. The industry that GoGo had become in the city at this point, where you could be a band from Washington, D.C. and play gigs and do well and be able to live and be a gigging musician for the most part. Well, 
I wish you didn't ask that question because I kind of want to piggyback kind of. Okay, we'll start there and then go back. Okay, cool. Do what you do, man. Yeah, because what Michelle said, far as the band's touring and everything, at that particular time when the buck came out, uh, I was in the military and I was in California, and uh, that was it. Actually, uh, when Marcus Miller wrote that, and and the buck was kind of like you know a big movie craze thing, I was I was in. Victorville, California, in the Air Force. So it was me around a bunch of cats, you know, that was checking it out. It was trying to understand the D.C. culture from there. So when I came home uh, on um, a, a medical leave uh, to see my grandmother at that time, EU was, was gigging, and uh, this is right before, uh, uh, well, it was after the move, after the song came out, and they was doing good, but what was crazy that time is these brothers ran the city. <laughs> That's the point I was these, these brothers, as big as that song was, Rare Essence ran the city. That was around the time when Fat Rodney was doing his thing. And, um, you know, so when EU went out on tour, I just so happened to see him in, when I was in Japan. So this was in 89. And so when I was in Japan and I was sitting back and I was rapping to the brothers, they was talking about, other than Bear, other than Bear, they was talking about rare essence. And, um, I mean, I'm not just saying that just to be saying it. That's how it was at that time. And it was crazy because I was starving for Go-Go at the time because I was like, you know, uh, I got hit up for my little Go-Go tapes at the time. When I came home to see my grandmother, my cousin stole my tapes. My father threw out my boom box and, you know, everybody was, you know, they were just hating on me at the time. So when um, Gene, he was uh, he was actually the Congo player. He, he was filled in for Foxy, uh, uh, Foxy Rob at the time uh, when he was on tour. Uh, he had some Go-Go tapes with him. And he was selling them to me, and I was buying them using Japanese currency. And he said, well, you know, you can get this for a 1,000 yen, you can get get that. But this right here is rare essence. This is 5,000 yen. (laughs) 5,000 yen at that time was $35 for a go-go tape, which is astronomical. (laughs) He got that $5,000, I mean 5,000 yen. Because, I mean, it was just, I needed that. I needed that because I, I was really, really starving. I mean, when I first went in, you know, the service, WOL was doing their thing. Conan and, 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 and uh, CJ, who I'm still in contact with. Uh, it's my man. Uh, but, you know, they, they was the big thing, you know, and, and that was what really inspired. Quickly explain WOL to people that aren't aware because this is another thing about D.C. that like we could only probably do in D.C. Well, WOL was a station right down the street on, on, on 8th Street. I believe it was 8th, 8th and 8th, so, so somewhere around there. It was 8th, 8th Street? 4th? Okay. All right. Well, I remember well, it was down on 8th Street. Street. If you live in Northeast tomorrow, yeah. and, like actually see what's there now and then hear about what's right. there then. Right. Because I, I came up on 21st and 8th. You know, so, uh, right, they used to call it Vietnam back in the day. Yeah, so um, that's a whole other story for another day. <laughs> but, it's a to this one, right? Yeah, yeah, so, um, but you know, Conan and, and CJ was my inspiration. Actually, when I came back, 
you know, and, and, and when I got into radio, I always remember how they actually kept Go-Go Live for me because I used to have tapes. They used to send me tapes of their, you know, of their shows, you know, when I was in California. And before then, we used to be down in Haynes Point listening to them, you know, just hanging out and listening to their show. So it was, um, but the bet, you know, for, for around the world for it to be only two Go-Go songs to make number one in, in, in the history of, of, of our, our genre, Bustin' Loose and The Butt. You know, but here, it just, you know, as Michelle was alluding to, it didn't resonate the same here because for whatever reason, we just felt like that was the true go-go. As, as, as his backyard, a lot of people look at backyard as that's the, that's the inner city feel. So they didn't look at the butt as that type of song that that DC felt, you know. But it, you know, as Andre as also alluded to, it was it was uh, it was great for not only the industry but for the for the genre of music. Right. So I mean, I want to finish this up by talking about like for all of you, like what it is for GoGo at this point to be this like thing where you could actually be a musician in DC and list on your tax return that you were a musician in DC playing go-go music. Yeah, um, well, back during those days, we were playing six nights a week. Six nights a week? Yeah, so, um, and in different parts of the city. That's right. Because there was so many venues out there that would allow you to come. How many venues are there now to play go-go in Washington, D.C.? Maybe <laughs> somewhere between five and ten. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you, man. So back in that, to, to, to back in that day, uh, GoGo was probably ten dollars, twelve dollars, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we, we, then, we talking about eighty-eight. Before yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Uh, you could come to the Coliseum, Washington Coliseum, and see about six bands for six dollars. Washington right. Coliseum located where, so that people who are new to the city since the year two thousand will know. Is it Third and M Street? Yeah. Third M Street. It's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's where the REI is. It's, it's an outlet. Where that big REI is. Yes, yeah, I've been outlet now. Yeah. yeah, you can see six go-go bands for six dollars. Oh, about twenty-five years ago. Entirely possible. Yeah, yeah. So um, we were we were fortunate enough to be able to play all around town, different parts, east, uh, uh, northwest, southeast, southwest, northeast. So we set ourselves up like that to be able to report the money that we were making. At that time, we were the band, we were the promoter, we were the advertiser, we did everything in-house. We owned the equipment, all of that. So we would just come in and rent the club or they would give us the club. Right. And they kept the bar and we would do our thing. Right, so, gee, yeah, I didn't want to cut you off, but uh, what's up? Oh, nah, I wanted to comment on what we were talking about before. Yeah, the go, no, no like problem, no problem, what, jump what, in. What the butt meant to D.C., you know, good and bad. I say, once again, another song where I was quite young, but I remember just how big it was at the time. I was going to a private school, a Christian private school at that time, and um, I remember getting in trouble. Me and my classmates, we would get in trouble when um, we would sing a song like Kumo D's Wild Wild West. But when the butt, when the butt came out, just because I guess it was so popular everywhere, our teachers didn't give us a hard time. They let us sing the butt in a Christian school. Right. You know what I mean? The butt. So Sister Patricia got a big old butt. Sister Patricia got a big old butt. Every, 
Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know who ain't right. <laughs> I just said, we just had some, maybe some younger teachers who, right. you know, were hip. They were hip. You right. know, but even just looking at, like, what I like to call black people cookout music. Yeah. The butt ranks in there. As far as D.C. goes, the songs you're going to hear at a black person's cookout in D.C., you know, with, you know what they got now, the wobble and uh, 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 anything, anything Frankie Beverly and Mays, you know, all of that. You know, right. just because of how successful that song was. Right. So I want to continue this conversation and talk about uh, in January of uh, 1990, uh, Marion Barry was arrested for uh, use of uh, cocaine. That happened. And uh, he went to prison. But, but there's a but. As people know, he got out of prison. He was reelected as mayor of Washington, D.C. in one of the great political moments of any history anywhere in the world, ever. I mean, so for, for black people, again, for people who lived in Washington, D.C., for the most part, D.C. was very divided at this point. It's like, okay, like, there's like people in D.C. who are black who are like, okay, we got out of prison. I mean, he got out of prison. I didn't get out of prison, but my mother specifically said the day that Marion Burr was released from jail that we got out of jail. And I'm like, oh, okay. My mother's right. We got out of jail. So, like, a black person was incarcerated. It was the mayor of Washington, D.C. He got out of jail. And then by, 19, uh, by 1994, 1996, where we're getting into with uh, the next song, uh, there was a financial control board that was instituted by the Republican Congress because D.C. was possibly a billion dollars in debt because of the rampant spending of Marion Barry to employ people like my mother and your mother and your mother and your mother and your father and your dog. But that's where we were. And in the midst of this, uh, GoGo's still going strong, right? Still happening, still going on. But there's, there's a band that I'm going to have G talk about because it's your favorite band. Okay. And uh, they, they came to Rise and they had a uh, charismatic front man named Anwan Big G Glover that... A lot of people, if you, if Gogo would have had the same kind of mainstream, like Vicka T that run, he would have been a kind of Tupac figure, in the sense that you know, as a uh, you know, as a crime adjacent person who was shot numerous times, about thirteen times, was it? Am I right? No, not thirteen. Not thirteen. He, he, he was shot multiple, he's multiple yeah. times. Yeah, he's, he's he was shot multiple times, the same way as Fifty Cent. You know, so he has and he has charismatic appeal and is part of a tremendous band. So um, one of the big things about Go-Go music is that Go-Go's big into the, the, the cover industry, of making great cover songs. And um, oh, in 1996, uh, Tupac put out, what's up? What's up? Okay, so Tupac put out an album called, uh, I believe it was All Eyes On Me. And uh, on that album, he has a song called Thug Passion. Yes. And Backyard made a cover of Thug Passion that I'm going to play right now, and I swear, if you are not moved in your soul by this song, I do not know that you have a soul. So I'm going to play uh, Thug Passion by the Backyard Band, and then I'm going to turn to Geronimo to say a couple of things about the Backyard Band.
I advise everybody to find a 10 minute version of that song because it's, it's like going to church. But uh, Geronimo, yes, talk sir. to me about Thug Passion, talk to me about Backyard Band, talk to me about DC in an era where you were kind of like getting out and around a little bit. You would have been in your teens. Every, every lie I told my mother to be able to sneak out the house to go see Backyard at that time. Who was this? Thug Passion came out in 96? 97? 96. 96. So, it was my first year going to Unifest. Um, Unifest. Explain by Unifest. Myself. Well, not by myself. We were some friends. Explain Unifest so that people understand. So, once upon a time, DC used to have outdoor festivals with all the go-go bands, whether they were the major, most popular bands to the lesser-known bands. They'd have vendors. It was like in different neighborhoods all across right. the city. So, Unifest, Unifest was one of the bigger ones. That happened every year um, up until 2006-ish. Two, or two, was it later in 2006? Okay, okay. So around that time. But nonetheless, see, went to Unifest that year. Um, I think I'd even gotten into, I got to go to one of the, the little day kitty parties, all ages parties that they were doing at the um, at the icebox. Yes. Explain to people the icebox. Explain to people physically where the icebox is in Washington, D.C. So that's important. If you know where Echo Stage is, if you know where Stadium is, um, if you make if you make a left, nah, Bliss is um, the Taj Mahal. So <laughs> if, if, you, if you make a left across, right across from where Echo Stage is. So it's like down, New York Avenue and Northeast. Dark Street and then you make another another left. <laughs> you was right there. You all the way yeah. at the end. You be you be right. Ivy there. City, yes. It used to be, before that it was the Zulu King. Oh, that's right. We go there. That's when I seen them. Third passion, just backyard in general. I don't even talk about third passion, but just backyard in general. Just like what they were, what they were just talking about in their songs, like. That wasn't my life. That wasn't anybody's life. That was I was friends with that I went to school with. Well, maybe some people I went to school with. Right. But none of my close friends. But I just I just felt the energy. It was different than any other type of go-go I had heard. And it felt like a youth movement. Like for my for my generation. It felt like the youth movement that, you know, maybe my sister's generation, who like I said is much older than me, you know, she came of age when like, you know, when y'all like were like doing it in the early eighties and everything like that. You know what I mean? So for me, I was like, I gotta be there. I gotta be a part of that, you know. So, like I said, the lies I told my mother to get out the house to go see backyard. <laughs> if she even knew, she probably cursed me out right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Andre, talk to me about when this band sprang up and when you knew that like backyard were like arriving, and you're like, okay, this is a band that we got to pay attention to. Well, we knew it off the break because. Um, they had a loyal following from their neighborhood uptown uh, around Clifton Street, uh, Northwest. Right. Uh, 14th and Clifton. Um, right, so if you go all the way up 14th Street, 14th and Clifton, that's a different place now. Yes, very <laughs> But right. they would follow Backyard to the edge of the earth. Anywhere they went, that, 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 there was a certain crowd that would go with them. So... They were bringing the crowds uh, uh, with them in different parts of the city. And then with G being such a tall statue. Six figure, foot six. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Slim then, Charles from The Wire, by the way. Yeah, Slim. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and with him being a little bit of a rebel at that time, that's what really drew people into um, the into backyard, into the backyard band. And then they made good, you know, they had good records. They they really entertained people while they were in the club. I think that particular record was sampled by Wale. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, and this was a few years ago. Right. So that record has clearly stood the test of time. Right. So, yeah, Michelle. And I wanted to speak on um, its significance musically. Right. Um, and and, it's, and it's, it's, it's good that Andre is sitting up here um, um, while I mention this because the, the, um, if you notice, if you've been listening to the, to the different songs he's been playing, this beat doesn't sound anything like any of the other beats that you've been hearing. And um, we call it a break beat. And that's a di- and, and backyard kind of ushered in this movement of the breakbeat. But working the walls to me is what they where they got it from. I mean, the first time I ever heard a breakbeat was Rare Essence working the walls. It's that same beat. Um, and so backyard, but backyard was the first band to pretty much play that breakbeat throughout most of their set, which was unheard of then. In fact, the first time I ever heard. The first time I ever heard a breakbeat wasn't from backyard. Um, I had gone downtown for something, and I was with my niece. And um, this band that was similar to Junkyard was just set up down there. Um, they had drums, and they had a microphone, they had um, some timbales. And they kept going to the foot, and the guy was saying a hook, and then they go back to that beat. And I'm like, what is this? Mind you, you know what I'm saying? Right. I grew up, and I'm, I'm, I'm a go-go head, quote-unquote. But I was kind of, okay, what is this? But it wasn't until I went to see Backyard. I thought, okay, now I get what it's all about. So Backyard is the first band to me to sort of invent a subculture within go-go. Which was the breakbeat culture. We don't call it that, but um, backyard played it. Northeast Groovers played it um, with Duck Walk. I mean, it's just like. Oh my God. Um, so we have some. Um, it's important, I think, just to say that because musically, Definitely. I think GoGo has gotten a bad rap. Although the irony in that is that a lot of um, national acts have come to DC and handpicked musicians, um, the best musicians in the world. From right here in DC, sure. absolutely. So, um, you know, musically, Backyard was able to do something. Um, they they created the, the sub the sub genre, the sub genre within GoGo, um, and uh, that was something that um, I think also has helped to cement um, Backyard uh, in this in this in this GoGo um, culture. Um, the fact that they were able to do that. And, um, you know, there's really only one other one that is just as big, and that's the bounce beat. But, um, obviously, that's for another right, discussion. Right, right. But Backyard was instrumental in ushering in an entirely new subgenre of go-go that they still play to this day. So, Nico, I look at you because I, I definitely want to talk about, like, this kind of feel like it's one of those things that, like, for the modern era of go-go fans, is like a, a thing that's like a giant, giant song that people don't give enough, like, you know, What's incredible about the song is that it still resonates to this day when they play it. It's one of the few songs that they'll come out with, with just the beat and the whole crowd will sing it before we see even drop a note. Right, it's one of those things <laughs> if you go to see Backyard Band live and you can still do that right now and they still play. Uh, Capital, I think, right? Yes. You know, Thursday nights. 
And if they played Thug Passion, when the first notes hit on Thug Passion, you will watch a room erupt. Like people will lose their minds like they have never, like, they, like they've, heard, they've never heard this song before a day in their life. 20 years later. 20 years later. It's incredible. So um, also if you could speak to what that song mean, meant to the streets of D.C. Very vital to speak to that. Like that's a, it's a song that I think is grounded in the streets of where 96 was. Well, for me, I was promoting backyard at the time, so it was it was love for me. <laughs> you know, I was you know I was throwing parties with them, uh, so uh, and also I was doing uh, some marketing promotion with them as far as uh, p- helping push their records and whatnot. And that came out on the Skillet album, which uh, right. when when that came out, uh, a lot of people don't know that song actually even actually charted on Billboard. Right, cause they were um, down the street, it was on Street Records, which is a Motown. Society. No, no, no. Street Records, Street Records is Mo, Mo Shorter's uh, label. Okay. So uh, now that that came out through Liaison. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so um, uh, when we was pushing that, uh, it was funny because me and Cooper was just uh, Cooper was the manager of the band at that time. Uh, right. We we was just talking about this on Go Go Radio Live uh, that we was actually going out and putting bumper stickers on all over the place, letting people know about it because. Cooper didn't actually, it was, it was a live recording, just like Rare Essence did live at the Metro Club, which was huge for them. They dropped in 86, right. 10 years uh, earlier or prior. And so when that came out, that was live from the Met as well. At that time, it was called Dino's. Right. So there's, there's a semblance there. Where was this there. club located, by the way? On Bladensburg Road, right, 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 right around the corner from uh, from the scene. Well, they call it the scene now, uh, from the icebox. Yeah, icebox, right. Yeah, so um, literally right around the corner, you know. So, um, but that's that's the synergy there because there was a lot of synergy between Rare Essence and Backyard because they uh, their drummer had a feel like uh, uh, Foots did. Um, and and you know they would tell you you know they got a you know their a, a lot of their idealism of how they wanted to play came from Rare Essence. I mean, I, I remember seeing them when they used to open for Essence uh, at the Nativity back in the day. And uh, as a matter of fact, it was one of the early years when Andre first started lead talking. You know, so um, but uh, when they first used to uh, used to start, they used to open up for Chuck Brown at the Kilimanjaro. You know, so yeah, you remember the Kilimanjaro? Yeah, around uh, 90, back then. So um, that's when they used to really get their f- feel. But when, when, when Thug Passion hit, to, to your point, when Thug Passion hit, it just kind of like pushed them to a whole nother level. You know, uh, and like I said, it really resonated through, through the inner city. I feel like Tupac was a big thing in D.C., like the same way that Scarface, a Houston rapper, yeah. is a big thing in D.C., like... In a way that, like, almost like you would think that for some people, like Tupac lived in Southeast. <laughs> like, yeah. well, his words like resonated in a way. Well, you know, you, you always hear this, the old saying, you know, women like a bad boy. Right. You know, Tupac had that bad boy uh, exterior, but he also came out with records that you know crossed all genres with the Dear Mama, you right. know, and, and things of that nature. So um, he had this, you know, well, he used to say, "F the world." mentality through his records but at the same time he was a very thoughtful insightful brother you know well versed well educated um a lot of it through a, a black sister like michelle you know uh his mother you know instilled into him a lot of his history you know so um 
And then a lot of people don't know, you know, Tupac has, he has some roots here in this area. You know, he came right. up in the Baltimore, Baltimore area. Right. You know, so, um, but Gene, his resonation through the city is, you know, a lot what Andre said is the fact that he had a lot of street cred with him, you know, and he also, uh, what I remember, the breakbeat actually started with Junkyard and uh, as well as, as Rare Essence because in 90, Junkyard used to do a song called Breakdown, you know, and um, I, I said along with Rare Essence. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> but then, <laughs> this is not for debate. <laughs> so, yes. Where junkyard and where essence used to have their thing at the black yard, uh, black black hole, where they used to open up for essence. So that, you know they, they they had their thing. You know where where they used to really get into it. As far as uh, I shouldn't say in a negative way, but you know with the bands, the way they played, it was it was a competition between them all. You know, and it was a good competition between all the major bands. But you know me talking to uh, a junkyard. You know, they really felt like they had to really, sh and to this day, by them opening up for Essence, they used to always have to give it their all. You know, and so that's kind of the way Backyard was. You know, uh, they felt like they had to really grind and, 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 and work their way to where they are at right now, where they're on top of this mountain, where, you know, they're the most highly acclaimed band in the city right now. Definitely. So I wanted to finish this up with one final song. Uh, it's a song that for me, I, I could say this to the person who's on stage, it's responsible for it in a lot of ways. Um, it represents a lot of like financial ability for especially black people in D.C. to be able to go out and enjoy themselves and then after they leave the club, go out and enjoy themselves and then go home with somebody and then enjoy themselves and then continue to thing and perpetuate it week after week after week after week after week, which is something that you couldn't do in 1980 in Washington, D.C. at the same amount of money that it costs to go to the club and then go to the pancake house and then go and, you know, you know the deal. So I'm going to play Overnight Scenario by Rare Essence. I mean, we'll get to that. We'll get to that for sure, but yeah, definitely. It's uh, touching the over the street. Yeah. <laughs> 
Scenario and um, obviously, Andre, we got we got to talk. Let's let's take me into where you were at at this point when you were in D.C. and making the song and deciding like, okay, this is something that you wanted to do because that hook is crazy. I mean, Jay Z stole, borrowed, used it, whatever. But like the idea that like you would think about a song and go into that level of detail is the thing that always blows my mind. So I wanted to ask you about that in real life. Well. That was actually occurring. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. On a nightly basis. And, and I mean, not just with the band, but with people in general. Because when, when we would leave the club, you know, we run into half of the club at the Pancake House. Which Pancake House is the Pancake House that you were talking about in this song? It's the one that's on um, uh, St. Barnabas Road right now. Now, when it was St. Barnabas Road, what, it, was at, it was on the other end of St. Barnabas Road at first. And then they moved it over, <laughs> over. That's another one, but we 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 frequent that one too. Right over by Marlow Heights, right, right. So it was that particular pancake house where we would run into half of the club after the after the show. So that's what started it all from from that right there. Right, so like the first time you played it out and you knew it was a hit, what was that like? If you could tell me about like that moment, where were you, were you playing in D.C.? Like, and, what, and what was it when you were like, okay. Yeah, we it. were playing at a club up here on 13th and K Street called The Room. It was upstairs. Um, and the first time we did that line, the whole club lit up. <laughs> so it was like, okay, one more time, come on. You know, so yeah. we did it again and, you know, the music started to formulate. After that, a lot of times what we would do is just try the, the hook out and the beat on the audience. If they respond, then we build on that. Right. If, they don't, if they don't respond, we change it to try <laughs> to get them to respond. Right. So that's where um, the, 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 um, the, the song pretty much started. Right, and I wanted to make sure that we also talked about the fact you shout out about 100 different neighborhoods in that and the importance of doing that in Go-Go Records. Well, because those were the neighborhoods that were in the in the club at that time, right? Along with uh, a bunch of the colleges, Norfolk State, Virginia State, Hampton right. U, all of those. A lot of those people were right there, um, and they would always, you know, at, at that time, we were still bringing pieces of paper up to us with their <laughs> shout-outs on it. So um, we would we would do that, and you know, give them some love. Right. So let, let's talk about Jay Z. If you want to talk about Jay Z for half a second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like the first time you heard uh, Do It Again, it's like 2001, so three years later, Jay-Z has a song, an album, it's called Do It Again. And the song begins off with uh, talking about going to the Waffle House, and you're like, everybody in D.C. like had a collective freakout. Anybody who's a native Washingtonian, we could all agree, right? 
There was this giant collective freak out. Yeah, like, what, Jay? No. So what was that like? First time, first time you heard it, you're like, what? Yeah, um, the first time we actually got a call from Def Jam Records <laughs> two days before they released that okay. record. And they said, uh, can you send us Overnight Scenario? So we sent it to them. Right. A few days later, and they, I'm sure they wanted to compare. Right. You know, what, what was going on here. So a few days later, uh, one of the DJs on, on, on um, I forget which station, it was either KYS or PTC, they said, I'm about to play a record that's going to make everybody in D.C. mad. <laughs> and he put that record on. And then they took calls. And everybody that called up was mad. Right. Because he obviously stole the format. Was that, the was that Flex Dre at the time? I'm not sure if it was Flex or Tigger. It was, yeah, it, it, it was, 90, it was 95. I remember it was 95, though, for sure. Uh, yeah. So it, it it was either flex or ticker. Yeah. So like, uh, so I wanted to ask it about like, had you ever seen Jay actually in the club? Was this a legitimate sample? Was he at, did he actually come to the club at any given time? No, he had the record. He, so he but had he the knew record that, But he knew that the record was a, was a record. Like he knew that this record existed in the world. D because they heard it in New York. He played. They played that record in New York. Right. And he took the format. Um. Knowing that it was on an independent label, small right. band out of D.C., uh, he figured, you know, what the hell. Right. So was even quoted saying that, you know, D.C. people, D.C., they do it to us. So, you know, what's the big deal we do it to them? Right. Which is crazy. But uh, so then I wanted to ask that about, like, people who came to the club. Like, like this is like a thing because it's like really amazing people would just turn up in D.C. in this era. Like, it was like... It was this cosmopolitan place where like everything was going on. So I wanted to ask it about like, what was the first time you saw somebody in the club and you're like, how are the first time you saw somebody in the club and you were like, this person is here while I'm doing this because I'm on stage doing this, and this person means something to me outside of just like, whatever. No, I'm not. I'm not sure. It 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 was a lot of we. I had a lot of friends that used to come out okay. to see us, to follow us right. all the time. And they, I mean, they were just like Backyard's crowd. They were loyal. Everywhere we went, they went. Right. Um, we went out of town. They were lined up behind the bus, driving down with us. So um, we've had that. We've been lucky enough to have those type of loyal fans for decades now. Yeah, so like, but like anybody who was like outside of the norm, somebody who was like, like a legitimate, like, media superstar who you were like, okay, this is weird. Well, yeah, you actually, there's, there's, uh, there's been a bunch of them. There's been a bunch of uh, hip-hop artists. There's been a bunch of actors. Uh, one, Taraji P. Henson used to come to Club U <laughs> <laughs> when we were there on Saturday nights. Um, and a bunch of rappers, um, Tweet called me the other day. Tweet is in, she was in town Saturday. She was supposed to come down to, uh, to the club. Uh, Biz Marquis, Dougie Fresh, all of those guys were, they were here so much till they didn't even have to call. They just show up, you know, and the, the promoter know, okay, let's put them in a section. So it was, it, was, it was a lot of that. And we still get some of that to this day. Right, right, right. So, gee, as far as, like, this record, like, I presume that this is the time where I was in the club. 
Like this is this is actually the era that I actually went to Go Go's. Like I never went to Go Go's when I was a child or a teenager because my mother was very protective. When like there was an era where like Go Go Bears would play the Sidwell Friends, and this is when Chelsea Clinton was at Sidwell Friends, and Go Go Bands were always at Sidwell. And so I'm like, Mom, it's got to be safe. The Secret Service is gonna be there. <laughs> like, come on now. I mean, Chelsea's gonna show up. I want to go. Like, I want to do this, and I couldn't go. So this is like the first time in my life around this era where I can like go out and like actually see stuff. So like I want to talk to you about that too. Like this era and this this song in particular. Um, I actually want to talk about a little bit after when this song came out. Right, so right, right. Okay. Year two thousand, I was a student at Howard University. Um, there's about ten people from the area, not just DC, but the entire area who go to, to Howard every year. I was one of those ten in two thousand. Um. <laughs> Everybody I met from other places, other cities, other states, they knew overnight. And they knew two go-go songs that were were somewhat recent. They knew overnight scenario, and they knew uh, pure elegance is one leg up. I don't know how they knew that, but they knew it. <laughs> well, you know, booty on and, the floor, and, and, you know. and they were saying, they were, you got that, you got that. So I would play overnight scenario for them, and they would like go crazy for it. And I was like, all right, that makes me feel good that you know you're going crazy for this. You know what I mean? But just to to what White Boy said, you know about them playing the song. They were playing it in New York, all the way down south, like you know, so. That that song in itself had enough crossover appeal beyond this region that you know people knew it elsewhere. Yeah, so Nico, I wanted to talk to you then about like because you you you're you know like playing Go Go in 2017. So I wanted to talk then about like this record and like people's connection to it or your connection to it, just in general. Well, overnight scenario um, at that time. Uh, was probably the biggest go-go record to hit the airwaves in a long time. Uh, it uh, it it was one of the next to CCB and uh, uh, my fatty when that came out. Uh, Overnight scenario was probably the most requested song on radio at that time. Uh, oh, from I believe. When y'all released it, was 98, Dre? Yeah, 98. So um, so at that time, around 98, I was I was still, you know, working, at work, you know, doing it in the streets, you know, working with bands and whatnot. But I was just getting ready to trans- transition, working in radio myself. Uh, I believe I came in in 99. Yeah, I was, I was in 99 when I started working with um, uh, uh, Craig Black at uh, uh, K- KYS. So, um, so that it still was resonating at that time. But I was also working in the record pool with my main man Eardrum. I know you remember him. And uh, for those of you who remember when Wax was out, uh, I referred to it earlier, you know, because of uh, F Street. But um, uh, DJs, it was a it was a record pool in the area, and it was uh, the the major record pool in this area was called Tables of Distinction. And Idron was like an uncle to me, and he actually taught me the record business. So he, at that time, he was telling me the significance of the song, and was I, I speak on on it again? How it resonated not only in the street, but to the common person who who wants to go out and have a good time, because the song embodies everything that you want to 
do as a clubbing person. You know, whether you was doing it right. or whether you envision yourself doing the to- it. The total experience. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to, hey, for the average guy, you want to go out, you want to meet a nice little honey in the club, you know, you know, next day after the club, you know, you've been drinking, you want to feed the gut, and then, you know, next thing you know, we're on the way home. You know, so, but it, it was real. It was right. real. And so that's why, you know, people really resonated with that song, but Rare Essence has a history of doing that. Right, definitely. So um, as far as our time, uh, we've come to our, our time. Uh, I want to thank Nico. I want to thank Geronimo. I want to thank uh, Andre for being here. And I want to thank everybody else for being here today. And Michelle. And uh, I would like to also say that the DC Library's GoGo Archive is alive and thriving and well. Uh, even though this, this branch is going to be uh, shutting down in a couple of days, this, the, the GoGo Archive will be touring. So uh, look at, uh, at DCPL on Twitter, uh, dcpubliclibrary.com. Check that out. And visit the GoGo Archive. Like, actually take a look at this. Um, it's being contributed to often, right? No doubt. Yeah, I, 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 have, I have a special collection coming to it. So. Okay, well, that's yeah. wonderful. That's, that's the thing. So, I mean, I'm going to be doing... Yeah, okay, okay. I didn't know if we had to reach our time or whatever, but if anybody has any questions, I can walk around and, you know, we can take care of this. So, anybody has a question? Okay. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. So I, I am, I, and you know, I hadn't even heard of your podcast until I heard about this. So I'm definitely going to check you out. But I wanted to, oh, that's, that's, it's not your podcast. That's your podcast. Good to know. Good to know. Um, so I'll be, I'll be downloading that. So I just want to say I'm 38 years old and I am from Silver Spring. Mar- I, I could tell by the way, by some of the things you're talking about. And so not being, you talked a lot about um, not actually being from D.C., but like living out in the suburbs, it still was, that there was such an impact because you had a, my mom is from D.C., so I have cousins from D.C., so I hung out with them, and I used to go see Rare Essence at the Black Hole, and um, I, used to go, I, used to go, I used to go see Groovers, too, but um, I had family all over. But I just want to say thanks to everyone on the panel. This is a great discussion because I, I don't, hear a lot about go-go. I, I think I'm not in the circle anymore um, like I was when I was younger. So when I heard about this, I thought it was going to be something different, and I'm glad that this is what it was because it just brings me right back to when I was still hanging out. And I just wanted to say thanks for uh, showing up. Appreciate it. Okay, hold up here. I'm coming around. I'll hit you next, all right? I got you. Yes, everybody should um, get the podcast from Geronimo. It's a really good podcast. I've been on it myself. (laughs) Um, So this is just one of those things that you ask. I'm a native Washingtonian. I have partied with the best of them. I have even been put out of the club. (laughs) Put out of the Ibex, but we will not talk about that. No, um, no, 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 baby. No, no, baby. No, not down, not down that street. Up that street. Uh, so my basic question is, I'm going to pose this to our, our legend on the stage. Um, how do we keep going? How do you keep going? How do we keep the music alive of this city? Our city is changing 
every second. How do we keep going with the music, with the history, with the education of Go-Go and the culture and the importance of this music? Well, by just keeping the music alive, podcasts, these panels like this, uh, when, whenever you hear a record that you like, um, you, don't, you no longer have to buy the entire album. You can buy that one song. So to, to, to support the actual groups and the movement, because the record industry responds to sales. Um, if you sell a lot, you get a lot. If you don't sell, they throw you to the side. And that's what they've been doing with um, not only go-go music, but uh, certain music that's not as popular as it was, or they don't really give it a chance. The record, to me, the record industry is extremely lazy right now. Because back in the day, they used to actually nurture and do the A&R work, find the songs for the artists, produce the songs with the artists, and then promote the artists. Now they're looking for who's hot on YouTube and tag and jumping on that. Well, you're not you're not really doing any work right there. You know, that, that person does all the work and you come in and give them a 360 deal where you get a part of their whole life. Um, so that's the way what, what, we, what we need is support from the audience that, that loves the music. We need support from the city officials that keep trying to blame the violence and anything that goes wrong on GoGo. That whole epidemic that was going on in the 80s was because of crack. It had nothing to do with GoGo. It just, it just so happens that this guy is beefing with that guy, but they go to the same party. And if you don't see him in his neighborhood or your neighborhood, you see him at the party, that's where you're going to approach him. We had nothing to do with that. We were the first ones to make sure that everybody coming in the door had a pat down. We were the first ones to put an airport-style metal detector in the club. We were the first ones to have police officers outside the club and on each end of the street. But they still blamed us for the violence that was going on. They figured it, the safest way is to just get rid of that band and there'll be no more violence. No, there's going to be violence at the movie theater or at the mall or somewhere wherever they see that person. Or at school. Schools, when I came up, <laughs> I didn't have to walk through a metal detector at school. So things, so, I'm getting off on something else, but the, the support the bands, support the music. And if you get a chance, come out and see the bands. That's, that's how we keep it going. So I was born in 90, or 94, so I'm a little young compared to all the other stuff that y'all have been talking about. But um, the woman up here was talking about how Go-Go has evolved over time and that there's breakbeat. And my question was, when did bounce beat come in? Like, TC, because that's, because the first Go-Go songs I heard was CCB, TCB, and things like that. But when did, when did officially bounce beat was bounce beat, you know? 
Bouncebee, actually, um, the brother that uh, actually started uh, Bouncebee was uh, uh, Polo, who uh, rest in peace to his soul. Uh, he actually brought me his very first record up to KYS, uh, and the single was called Drop the Chalupa. And that was in uh, 2000, I believe. I believe it was, it was either, either uh, 99 or it, it was probably 99. It was probably 99. And, but the song that really took off for them uh, to make TCB who, 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 who they were and it really broke bounce beat was called Make It Clap. And so um, that, was, that was around that time. Uh, it was, I believe it was 99, 1999. You know, to make a, to answer your question. Hi, um, I have a question. Obviously, um, <laughs> I have the opportunity to write an article about the late great Chuck Brown, and I also in that article I interviewed E from OP Tribe. Mm -hmm. And um, something about the city, about the police, and other groups. As I guess this would be directed to the legend. Um, as someone who's been invested in GoGo so long, what is your stance on the cultural attributes of GoGo, and how do you see not just preserving the music, but the actual like the 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 breakbeats of the Congos, the Tambales, the Rolatons, that kind of thing, the percussion. So we preserve the music by uh, Rare Essence puts out new music. Um, and in our performances, we try to keep it, um, keep it live and keep it festive and, and just have people to really have a good time. Because if they have a good time, they're going to go back and tell somebody else, and the next time they're going to bring a few people with them. So that's the main thing that we want to make sure we're doing. You don't even have to be facing us. You don't even have to look at the band. As long as we see you dancing and sweating your hair out, we know that we're doing our job. That's what we, that's what we want right there. Um, the the um, cultural side of it, yeah, um, Chuck Brown was influenced by the um, Latin, because he used to play with a Latin band. Um, Los, Los Tinos. Uh, yeah, Los Hacinos. Um Us, we had a Congo player named Jungle Boogie. He was the one that actually put the African beat up under the uh, on the on the percussion beat, and then the uh, other percussionist that we had, David Green would put a cowbell beat. So all of our rhythms were very syncopated. And everything is not hitting on the one. Some's hitting on the two, some's hitting on the four, some's hitting on the three. But it all locked in together. So that's what, and we took the time to really perfect the percussion beat. Like we would have percussion beat practices where it's nothing but percussions for two hours. That's because we wanted the beat to be that tight. So that's how we were able to make sure that our percussion section was tight, then we put whatever rhythm stuff we were going to put on top of that. But we had that good foundation 
to be able to build on. Oh, hey, how you doing? Um, I'm King Slim. I'm an artist. And uh, one day you called me. You called me personally. I had a big record called Goosebumps. It was on KYS. Yes. And you, you called me, and I just wanted to let you know that that made my day. I never forgot that. You called me. I, you took time out your day to tell me you liked my record, and I didn't know I was talking to you since White Boy from Red. Oh, man, that, that meant everything to me. Now we're going to get to the next subject. <laughs> this might be a touchy subject for you, but this is some honest stuff. The kids don't. The kids don't really like Go-Go. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm talking 10, 11, 12. They want to hear rap. You hear, um, you hear Shy Glizzy or you hear Fat Trill, and you know if they were like 10 years older, they would be in a band. And um, maybe I missed the, the question that you asked because I did go out to my car and I heard you guys were kind of talking about it. But how do we get that to the kids? Because... With the music, like you said, right, they're doing right now is most mostly emulating. But if you had that influence of go go in it, you could be original. And I don't, I don't see that, I don't hear that, and I feel like that's really lacking because the go go is lacking. You know, most of the bands that's popping in go go are the bands that have been popping. Your backyards, your essence. You, you guys can still play because you have that foundation. You, you, you've never heard of a young band coming up. Since UCB or TCB, maybe CCB was the last one, mm -hmm. you haven't heard it. So how do you, how you feel about that? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. But what's happening is the music is not being nurtured anymore because what they're doing is they're listening to what's on the radio, which is trap music, all day long. So that's what they're, that's what they're into now. Um, my kids are into trap music. They don't, they don't want to hear nothing I'm playing. They want to hear trap music. They want to hear Shy Glizzy and all of those other, you know, Future and all of, those, all of those guys there. So if we could insert Go-Go into radio, into television, and, and if the bands had more places to expose themselves, then that younger generation would get more into the music. Right now, they don't have the, uh, uh, they're not accessible, the music is not accessible to them. So, they, what, they, they're going with what they hear, which is trap music on, on radio and on YouTube and Spotify all day. Real quick, uh, God bless Chuck, Benny, Ms. Mack, Real Inner City Groovers, Rare Essence, Trouble Funk, Experience Unlimited, Mass Extinction, 81 was my year, for real, for real. Go, go, forever. Thank you, man. Beautiful. Yeah. I, I can't close it past that, so thank you so much, everybody, for coming out. Again, we really appreciate it. Still there? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's still there because that was awesome. I, I, you know, anytime Marcus gets to do his do, uh, uh, which he has a lot of stuff that he does, but he, anytime he gets to do what he does, uh, it turns out it turns out really nice. It turns out really nice. You come away feeling refreshed, entertained, and informed. I don't think you could ask for more. Uh, that's going to be a uh, a series. I'm not sure when the other dates are, but we're going to let you know. Uh, you should definitely turn up to see this. 
Uh, but if not, I think we're going to be we're going to be providing them to you uh, in the same fashion as a as a little podcast, a little information dump. Uh, next one, hopefully, I'm going to get out there. We're going to set up a little a little a little better recording apparatus. But you know what? The recording doesn't matter. You you get the point. You can you can hear everything. Here's the thing: if sometimes life is rough, and if the roughest thing in your life right now is is a uh, is a a recording that isn't perfect. A sound recording isn't perfect. And I think we're doing okay. I think we're doing okay if that's that's where we're at. Um, thanks again to those guys for putting it together. Can't wait to see uh, how the rest of these turn out. That is our podcast uh, to kick off this week on this Monday. Uh, coming up later on the week, we are going to be... Uh, Marcus and I are going to be sitting down. <laughs> and uh, and uh, maybe some of you guys are fans of Future. I... Uh, will cop to the fact I'm not even sure what a future is. So, uh, I'm going to be asking Marcus 20 questions about future. Uh, because this guy has two albums in the uh, bestseller on the Billboard charts or whatever, and that's that's never been done. And uh, so we're going to talk about it. Should be should be entertaining. It's going to be it's going to be like absolutely illuminating for me, but hopefully uh Hopefully to be entertaining for you guys. Uh, if you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can leave us a rating or a message there. You can listen to us on Google Play. See Stitcher, Mixcloud, up on the SoundCloud when we put them up there. When we put the choice episodes up there, leave them there for a while. Uh, I said coming up next week, we're going to be doing future. And then uh, beyond that, we have an album by Julian Lage. Uh, and Chris Eldridge, that one's coming up and uh, we're going to be talking, I think we're going to be doing some dirty projectors, and further on down the line Father John Misty, and I know you're thinking like, no, don't, don't, don't don't go down that path we might have to go down that path, I didn't want to guys, but I think I think we're going to have to so, but that's not, that's, that's way down the pipe, hopefully we'll be talking to some artists too, so we got a lot of, a lot of good stuff coming up uh, I'm going to get out of here right now so you can get on with the rest of your day uh, we'll be back in a few. We'll be back on Thursday. Until then, be good to your ears, but be better to your people. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs> Kenobi!